I've got to warn you guys up front. I'm going to step on some toes tonight. I'm not talking about predestination. I'm not talking about eternal security. And I'm not talking about spiritual gifts. I'm talking about pets to start out here. And I know that's dangerous because a few weeks back I mentioned chihuahuas as little rat dogs. They are. And I saw a cringe and a husband pointing at his wife looking at me saying, no, and I, no, stop. And, and I found out afterwards she has two chihuahuas. And, and we spent 15 minutes in the lobby cordially working through our chihuahuas, little rat dogs or not. But tonight what I want to talk about is, is dogs and cats. And it's been on my mind this week partially because Jaden has had to take a survey in his math class of who likes dogs and who likes cats, and so is my nephew, Mikayan. Came up five to five of the 10 people that he surveyed. Curious, in this room, who are the dog people? Just raise your hand. Holy cow. All right, and who are the cat people? Whoo, the, the few, the, the minority. I picked on dogs a little bit last time, so partially because there's more people that like dogs here tonight, I'm gonna pick on cats a little bit. All you dog people got to protect me, though. There are a few things that have been written about dogs and cats. One guy said it this way. He said, dogs come when you call them. Cats take a message and get back to you when they're available. Dogs bark to wake you up if the house is on fire. Cats quietly sneak out the back door. Dogs sit, lie down, and roll over on command. Cats smirk and walk away. Dogs greet you at the door and lick your face when you get home from work. Cats didn't even know you were gone. And last but not least, dogs let you give them a bath sometimes. If you try that with a cat, they take out a contract on your life. <laughs> Another guy said it this way. He said, let me break down shortly how dogs think and, and how cats think. You see, they both say, you love me. They both say, you pet me. They both say, you feed me. But the conclusions they come to from that are very different. Dogs think, hey, you must be God. <laughs> Cats think, I must be God. <laughs> and there was a guy in the Christian world that looked at cats and dogs a few years ago, and he said, hey, this is a great metaphor for the spiritual life in some ways. And he wrote a book called Cat and Dog Theology. Uh, the subtitle was Rethinking Our Relationship with Our Master. Dog theology says, I exist for God and his glory. I exist for God and his glory. That's dog theology. Cat theology says, God exists for me and my glory. And throughout the book, he's challenging people to look at their lives and say, what kind of theology are you living out in your life? Are you a spiritual dog or are you a spiritual cat? It's about God and his glory. It's about you and yours. And the reason I reference that briefly in our passage in the book of Acts tonight, I see two people that are great living examples of both of those kinds of theology. And we're going to watch their lives played out on the pages of history and scripture as we go through Acts chapter 8. We're going to see Philip, one of the seven who was chosen to help with the feeding of the widows. He was listed in that list right after Stephen. We read about Stephen a couple weeks ago. Philip is going to show us what dog theology looks like. And we're going to look at three ways that Philip is an example to us of dog theology. And then we're going to look at a man named Simon the Magician who lived in the town of Samaria who's going to show us three examples of what cat theology looks like. 
<laughs> yes, that's the overall point tonight. Cats are evil. So if you take away... <laughs> But there's more dog people, so we're safe with that. may not be fair, but that's where we're going. So I want you to, as we look at Philip and Simon, even as believers, if you're a believer in this room tonight, I want us to ask that question. Which theology am I living out in my own life? And hopefully the, the Spirit will show us clearly which it is. We're in Acts chapter 8, verse 4. You remember the context, as I mentioned Stephen stood up in front of the leaders of the land and he told them basically, you've, you're God's way too small. You've limited him to your temple. You've limited him to Moses and you've limited him to the law. But that very Moses that you talk about, he pointed to Jesus and you need to get with Jesus and ex embrace this big God that works outside of your places and your methods and your ways. You remember after he laid it all on the line, they stoned him. And that opened up the gates of hell against the early church. It says they began to persecute the early church. Saul began to go door to door persecuting the church. And Acts chapter 8 verse 4 said those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Their, their, their attempts at persecution backfired. Warren Wearsby said that persecution is to the church what wind is to seed. All throughout history, we've seen that when the church is persecuted, they spread. And this verse says, they preached the word wherever they went. So let's jump in and hear what happened with Philip. Next verse. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Christ there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the miraculous signs he did, they all paid close attention to what he said. So I want to tell you the first way Philip shows us a dog theology is pretty simple. He obeyed Jesus. Jesus had told the apostles that the Spirit's going to come on you so that you can be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And Philip said, okay, that's what Jesus said. That's what I'm going to do. And what I like about this is there's nothing in this verse about the spirit setting up any special divine circumstances or an angel breaking down a jail gate or anything like that. There's nothing necessarily mystical or supernatural in the verse. It's just Philip saying, hey, I'm going to obey God. Jesus said it, I'm going to do it. And we know from the next message we're going to preach, sometimes the spirit does lead us specifically. Philip part two, the next time we preach, he, he led him right to an Ethiopian eunuch. Angel told him to go to the, the road. But this time, None of that. And, and what I want to say to us as a group is sometimes we wait too long for some sort of mystical, supernatural sign that we need to talk to somebody. Sometimes we're always looking for just the right moment for them to say just the right thing at just the right place. And like I said, God does that sometimes. But sometimes God's waiting on us just saying, hey, I told you to preach the gospel. That much is clear. Now please go do it. That's what we see Philip doing here. That's point one, he obeyed his master. That's dog theology. Are you obeying your master in that call to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ? I hope so. I hope we're a group that's doing that. Secondly, he put Jesus and his mission ahead of his own safety and his own preferences. The safety factor is obvious. Stephen had just been killed for speaking about this Jesus. And I know we like to imagine these early believers as superheroes, but they're human. 
And Philip would not have been human if he had not had the thought, whoa, they just killed him for talking about Jesus. Stephen was the first one. Maybe, just maybe I should quiet down with this stuff. He wouldn't be human if that didn't cross his mind, but we see him going here and preaching this anyway. Let's go back one verse, Autumn, please. Where does it say he was going with this gospel? Samaria. Absolutely. And those of you who know your Bible know this is not a place a Jew would naturally prefer to go. There's a lot of history, and I won't go into all of it, but basically there's one kingdom of Israel. It split, and the northern kingdom got taken into exile before the southern kingdom. And what the Assyrians did when they took them into exile was they took a bunch of them out. They brought back a bunch of Assyrians, mixed them with the Jewish people that were there, and they had kids. And so all the Jews in the southern kingdom looked at those people as half-breeds. They hated them. Those people in the northern kingdom built their own temple. So the people in the southern kingdom were saying, no, we worship God at the temple in Jerusalem. They got their own temple. We hate them for that. And when Nehemiah wants to rebuild the wall around Jerusalem, the, the Samaritans were some of the people that, that came against God's people. So there's not a lot of good feelings here. Even in the New Testament, you remember, Jews would walk around Samaria to get where they were going. One exception with Jesus that we'll talk about in a little bit. Point being, Philip probably didn't prefer to go here naturally, but he went. He obeyed. He went putting his own safety and preferences underneath Jesus. And look what happened. It says, when the crowds heard Philip, And saw the miraculous signs he did. They all paid close attention to what he said. Next verse. With shrieks, evil spirits came out of many. And many paralytics and cripples were healed. So there was great joy in that city. I want to ask one more question to get to our third point about Philip showing dog theology. Who was it that Philip proclaimed there in those verses? Christ. Absolutely. Philip was all about speaking about his master, Jesus. That consumed him. And if we're going to live with a dog theology where we follow our master, he ought to be the one that we talk about. And I'd like to ask us as a group, are, are we talking about Jesus out there? Is it just a natural overflow of what goes on in our lives? Remember what Jesus said? He said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So if we're passionate about something, it's going to come out. If you're a Ravens fan, you're still talking about the Super Bowl a couple weeks ago. The rest of us are done. Okay? It, it just comes out. If you're a NASCAR fan and you've got a favorite driver, you can't stop talking about that driver. I know i got, got a couple uncles that love NASCAR. If you love Jesus and you have a vibrant, living relationship with him, it's naturally going to come out as you talk to people. I like to ask us as a group, is that happening? Is there a natural overflow in our lives where we're talking about Jesus? And if we're not talking about Jesus, what is it that we are full of? I want to talk about Simon now, verse 9. Simon the magician. This is not Simon Peter, obviously. Now, for some time, a man named Simon had practiced sorcery in the city and amazed all the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was someone great, and all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, this man is the divine power known as the great power. I want to tell you three ways Simon shows us the cat theology. 
Obviously, I just asked you who Philip proclaimed. Who was it that Simon was busy proclaiming? Himself. That's one sure sign that you're living with a cat theology. If you're obsessed with thinking about and talking about yourself to others, impressing others with who you are and what you've done in your life, talking about your issues, your things, and and you don't know how to listen to other people. If you're uh, obsessed with talking about yourself, you're living with a a cat theology. And, And it's interesting that Simon showed up here. You guys remember, and I alluded to it, Jesus had come to this city during his ministry, met a woman at the well, told her that he was the Messiah. She believed, she went and told others and a revival started in that town. The theologians wonder if this isn't Satan's counterattack. Satan doesn't like when Jesus breaks into his territory. So Satan says, hey, the word of Jesus is starting to spread through this town. I'm gonna raise up someone else to lead him astray. And Philip going there is God saying, no, I'm not done there. This, I'm going in there to save people. God is a God who's mighty to save, and he's not going to stand by while Simon deceives these people. So let's go on and look, look at Simon some more. They followed him because he had amazed them for a long time with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached the good news of the kingdom of God, there it is, Philip's proclaiming his master, his kingdom, in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. So they're seeing real miracles in opposition to this guy's counterfeit phony stuff. And they're saying, we want to follow what this Philip is talking about. We want to believe in what he's saying over Simon. Next verse, Simon himself believed. And this is an interesting verse we're going to get into a little bit. Simon himself believed and was baptized. And he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. See, Simon was most likely doing fake magic, and so he sees the real stuff, and he's kind of like, wow, there's something powerful going on here. There's a lot of question about, did he really believe in Jesus as his Savior or not? Because we know from Jesus' own ministry in John chapter 2, there's a group of people in Jerusalem that saw what Jesus did there. You remember what Jesus said about them? said, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many people saw the miraculous signs he was doing, believed in his name, but Jesus would not entrust himself to them for he knew all men. He did not need man's testimony about man for he knew what was in a man. When he fed the 5,000, they wanted to make him king and Jesus wanted nothing to do with that. And I think what some of these passages are saying is it's, it's possible to believe in Jesus as a, a magician, as a provider, but miss that we need to believe in him as a savior. We don't know what the case is with Simon, but we do know what really caught his attention in that last, last line, right? He was astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. Let's go on. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them. So word gets back somehow that people in Samaria are getting saved. That doesn't hit you and I like anything big. When Jews hear that, that's going to rock the boat a little bit. When Christian Jews hear that, they're going to go down and see what's going on. So these are the two big dogs, right? Peter and John. They sent them down to them. When they arrived, they prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit had not yet come upon any of them. They had simply been baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. 
Now, this is a verse you could spend a whole sermon series on the debates that have happened over this. You know, what's up? They, they believe in Jesus and then they don't receive the Holy Spirit till Peter and John show up? What's going on? And what I want to say is this is part of a transitional period in history. And what God's trying to show here by Peter and John going down from the Jerusalem churches, these people are part of the same church as the church in Jerusalem. There's unity Today, we know from Romans that if anyone doesn't have the Spirit of Christ, he's not in Christ. It's a package deal. This doesn't happen this way today. They just wanted to show there was a, a unity. But I want to get back to Simon quickly. Verse 18. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, listen to this. This is sign two of his cat theology. He offered them money and said, give me also this ability so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. I want you to look at that statement that he made. Give me also this ability so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. This is a man who's more consumed with what God can give him than having a relationship with God. He's more consumed with what God can give him than having a relationship with God. That's the second sign of cat theology in our lives. If we're more interested in the blessings that God can give us, the ways he can make our life better than we are in sweet fellowship and relationship with him, we're essentially being selfish. We're being cat theologians. Let's go on and look at Simon some more. I like Peter's response here. He says, may money perish with you because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord. Perhaps he will forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you're full of bitterness and captive to sin. Some commentators have looked at what Peter said and said an actual better translation of the Greek is to with you and your money. And these are strong words from Peter, but in Peter's shoes, you can remember a time in his life when he tried to convince Jesus to take the easy path, uh, the path of comfort and the path of selfishness. And you remember Jesus had his own strong words for him. I'm sure he remembered it. Get thee behind me, Satan. You have not in mind the, king, the things of the kingdom of God. You have in mind the, the things of men. Peter's just passing on what, what he already knows. He says, repent, pray to the Lord. Perhaps he'll forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. And maybe there's some of us in this room who've been there this week where we're more obsessed with what can God do for me than having that love relationship with him. And God would say the same thing to us. We need to repent of that. We need to lay that down and get back to him being the priority in our lives, not what he can do for us. Simon's response gives us our third point about cat theology. Simon answered, this is so weak. Listen to this. Pray to the Lord for me so that nothing you have said may happen to me. What, <laughs> what do you not see in that verse? Number one, he's not praying himself. He's asking somebody else to do it. Number two, he has no brokenness about the sin he just stepped into. He just doesn't want to get nailed. 
He has no interest in changing his life and lining it up the way God wants him to. He just doesn't want to pay the consequences. That's another third sign of cat theology in our lives. If, if we know and we've been confronted with sin in our lives by God, through his spirit, through another believer, however it comes, we know we need to lay it aside, but we're really not interested in that. We just want to continue down our path just so we don't get in trouble. That's a third sign of cat theology. Simon's a great example. When they had testified and proclaimed the word of the Lord, Peter and John returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel in many Samaritan villages. I wanted at the end of this passage tonight to to talk about what what is it that motivates us or should motivate us in our dog theology. There's some thinking some biblical thinking that ought to drive us into an obedient mindset towards God. And there's a a wonderful author named Mike Breen. He actually pioneered missional communities over in Europe about 25 years ago. And he wrote a book called Covenant and Kingdom. And I want to walk through just a couple pictures. He says, basically, if you read your Bible, there are two main threads that tie the whole thing together when it comes to our relationship with God. The first one is covenant or our relationship with him. You think of covenant, you think of a marriage covenant. Covenant is relationship in the kingdom, which is our responsibility to live for God. And I want to walk you through a couple pictures. This is what ought to motivate a dog theology. He, he draws these pictures in his book. He draws them much better than I did. I got a new <laughs> drawing program on my iPad. I apologize. I'm working on it. <laughs> you notice there's a triangle there. And when it comes to our relationship with God, we've got to start at the top recognizing that if we trusted in Jesus, God is our Father. That leads us down to our identity. We are His child. And once we are secure, only when we're secure in that fact that Jesus paid the price, that we are God's children, nothing can change that, nothing can take it away. It's only out of that kind of security and faith that true obedience can come in the power of the Holy Spirit. He says, if we try to go the other way from father to obedience to child, it's a constant treadmill of insecurity and you cannot obey God with that kind of insecurity. It's unbiblical at the very least. Our, our righteousness is his filthy rag. So it starts with recognizing he's our father who loves us. We're his child and nothing can change that. And out of that love and security, our obedience flows. That's our relationship with God. Now let's go to kingdom. That's our responsibility for God. It's not enough, biblically speaking, just to rest in the relationship. We want to rest in it, but there's a responsibility we have as well. And that comes, as you see at the top, we recognize that God is king. What does that mean by default? I am not. And it's only as we recognize that God is king that he begins through Jesus, as Jesus said, all authority is in me, therefore go make disciples. When we recognize that God is king, he shares his authority in our lives on this planet and he gives us the power, as he said in Acts 1.8, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and give you power to share the good news. We've got to recognize God as father and God as king we are not. And that's where 
our identity, our obedience, our power comes from. Now, what we see a lot too often today is I'll call our substitute, which is entitlement. And this is where a lot of us need to spend some serious time before God, myself included it at times in my life, where we've messed the whole biblical picture up. What we really believe or act like we believe is that God is our genie. This is a motivation for cat theology. And what's that make us? That makes us, for lack of a better word, it makes us Aladdin. And we think that out of that, we get our wishes. And there is no power in that because as we said in the last picture, until you recognize God as king, not just in your words, but in the way you live, you will have no power to have an impact for him in this world. This entitlement needs to be replaced with this picture of God as father and king. I want to close by telling two relatively disturbing stories from the news, and they're disturbing on purpose. I chose two disturbing stories because I think when God looks down at his children and his church and he sees that we have intertwined our selfishness in our kingdom with the gospel, it disturbs him. It disgusts him. The first one happened in Chicago this week. I don't know how many of you heard about the 51-year-old woman who's charged with aggravated domestic battery when she bit off her boyfriend's tongue. Now, when you hear what he says, there's actually a little bit of humor in this story. This guy must be kind of a cool guy to hang out with. He's kind of funny, but evidently what happened was they were having an argument of some kind, and he tried to make things up by giving her a kiss. And she decided to go ahead and bite off part of his tongue. And, and this is what he said. He said, the whole thing makes me kind of sad, asking not to be identified. <laughs> and one day I lost half a tongue and my girlfriend. He says, yeah, uh, I've done it before. Tried to make things up with a kiss. We have arguments and I come in and grab her, stop this, try to kiss her. It's worked before and I thought it would work now. She sat it on a cabinet and he tried to take it to the doctors and get it sewed back on. <laughs> it was unable to be put back on. So until his tongue heals, they said it will, will heal in time. His speech is garbled. What I want to say is just like when he kissed that gal and he lost his ability to speak, when the church and you and I as God's children kiss the idol of selfishness in our lives, we too lose our ability to clearly communicate the gospel because it becomes garbled. Because no matter how much you and I tell people about Jesus and his kingdom, when they look at our lives and see that we're just as individualistic as the next person in that we're trying to isolate us and our family from the world and its problems, we're just as materialistic as they are. We're consumed with the stuff we have and we can't have enough of it. We're sending a garbled message. Kissing the idol of selfishness causes us as God's church and people to communicate the gospel in a garbled way. Second one has to do with water. Jesus said in the Bible, he is living water. That's what he told the woman at the well, right? He said, I am living water. And you think about water and its properties. It has cleansing properties, such as when we shower or brush our teeth. It has life-giving properties because we cannot live without water. How many of you heard about the Cecil Hotel in California this week? The maintenance man began to notice that the water pressure was getting low. 
maintenance man went up on the roof to the water tank where all the water was stored, and as he looked into it, he found a corpse. There's a corpse of a young woman from Canada, 21 years old, that had been missing for two weeks. So for two weeks, individuals in this hotel had showered, brushed their teeth, drank water that had that corpse in it. And they interviewed some of the people after the fact, and there was one couple from the UK that said, you know, the water did taste kind of funny. We thought it was just American water. That's disgusting, right? Can you imagine if you'd stayed in that hotel and found that out after you'd made that coffee with that water and brushed your teeth in it? What I want to say is when we mix selfishness in our kingdom, our ways, with the gospel of Jesus Christ, we contaminate that living water that's supposed to be a blessing to people. And it's appalling. It's disgusting when we try to somehow navigate this balance between, yeah, I talk about Jesus, but really, when it comes down to it, life is all about me. And, and I challenge you guys, even in the Christian books that you read, to evaluate where they stand on this matter. There are a lot of books that want Christians to read about how we are loved, period. We are blessed, period. Some of them go on to say, you will be healthy, period. You will be wealthy, period. I believe the first two for all believers. I don't necessarily believe the last two for all. But where the problem is, is with the period. We are not blessed, period. We need to take those periods and get rid of them. We are blessed as God's children to be a blessing. We are loved by Jesus so that we can take his love to the world. If you're healthy, it's so you can use that energy and strength to spread the gospel around the world. If you're wealthy, it's not simply for you and your family. It's so that you can advance God's kingdom by reaching out to the poor and needy and taking the gospel into the uttermost parts of the world. We need to get rid of the period and too many Books, even sold in our bookstores today, stop there. The Christian life is not all about you, and it's not all about me. We're part of the story, but we are blessed to be a blessing. And I think when we read books like that and believe that and stop with the period, God wants me to have a healthy marriage. There's another one, period. Yeah, he does, but he wants you to have a healthy marriage so that you can reach your neighborhood with the gospel of Jesus Christ. As long as we read the books that have those ideas with those periods, you know what? I think Satan enjoys those books as much as you do and as much as I do. Because as long as we stop there, that the gospel's good for me and mine, he's fine. Because we're not going to advance God's kingdom. We need to get rid of that period and realize that we are loved to take the love of Jesus into the world. I want to close by sharing something that David Platt said in his book, Radical. He said, too often, and this represents cat theology, he said, we want to ask the question, how much is this going to cost me? And then I'll see if I'm going to get in. We need to take the approach that says, I'm in. Now what's it going to take? That's the dog theology. Now, I want to be careful with that because Jesus does tell us to count the cost. There's wisdom in being up front that, yes, we need to realize that when we say we're going to follow Jesus, there is a cost involved. But if we're always about, like, what's in it for me? How hard is this going to be for me? 
Oh, if that's going to be hard, I'm not going there. We've missed it. We've missed it. We need to set our eyes on Jesus and say, Jesus, what do you want? I'm going to obey you no matter what the cost because you're worth it. So I want to close with the question. So the worship team comes back up. What kind of theology are you live in? Is it cat theology? You think God exists for you and your glory? Or is it dog theology? Do you exist for him and his glory?